Welcome to The Bear and the Ball. I am your host, Nick Webster, and today I am delighted to welcome the Director of Coaching for FC England, a really cool club on the west side of LA, Paul Spacey to the show. Paul, welcome. Nick, thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. So I can tell you've got an accent. First of all, you've got to tell us where you're from and who you support. Oh Jesus, that's a bad one. Um, I'm, look, I'm from uh, I'm from Coventry, but strangely, I support Everton. What a bad decision when I was six years old. Imagine making that and sticking with them like you have to. So yeah, yeah, you're having a rough old season this year, uh, and I, I don't think Monday was too pleasant either. But anyway, on to bigger and better things. Um, tell us about yeah, yeah. Your, your experience first of all as, as a player, and then how you moved into the coaching profession. Yeah, um, so I I played as a as a youth teamer with Stoke City um, and a few a bunch of players that ended up playing at a high level, and ultimately I wasn't quite good enough to get to um, and stay at the top pro level. Um, but I played a decent kind of fifteen year semi professional career with clubs like Nuneaton and Brackley Town and Chase Town, and had some good experiences. Played in the FA Cup against Cardiff and Aaron Ramsey and. And a few other clubs. So, yeah, that, that was fantastic. I moved here uh, then to Los Angeles when I was, Jesus, I was 31. So 11, 12 years ago now. Um, not necessarily with the intention of coaching. I'd done a little bit of coaching back home, but just kind of came here for a short period with my ex, actually. She was studying here and I came and just said, look, we'll give it a go for a year, see how it goes. I ended up uh, meeting a guy from New Zealand who ran a, a private coaching business. Good guy, got involved with him. He didn't want to do it anymore. Took over from him, bought his business, got an investor visa as part of that. And the one year of staying here then became five years. And then kind of got into uh, got into team coaching from there with initially with Santa Monica AYSO with their extra teams. And that was great, a year or two. And I met a, a guy from uh, from Manchester that straight uh, he'd moved here from Oregon, I think. Got divorced, moved to moved to California. Bumped into him randomly six months after working together. He said, "Look, uh, I've always wanted to start my own club. I kind of ran something similar up in Oregon. Uh, are you interested?" And I just said, "Yes." I've thought about it for a number of years, and bluntly, I, I've worked for myself, Nick, since I was eighteen. So. I'm not very good at working for other people. And so I always knew that if I was going to start a club, it would be my own rather than going to work for somebody else at a club. And so, yeah, that, that was it. It took 18 months, maybe two years to put it together. And the club started in 2015. So within, within your playing career, obviously you had many different styles of coaching. Was, was there anything that really grabbed you as a player that you thought to yourself, Hmm, I, re- I really like that methodology or the, uh, that approach or the mentality and, and, it's, and it's come with you in your coaching career? Yeah, I, I guess two sides to that. Firstly, the good part, then the bad. And, I, and I'll start with the good. Um, yeah, the coaches that really, they, they had that connection with you and you really felt like they cared. Those were the coaches that I wanted to play for. And I had some good ones, some bad ones. But those were the coaches that you ran through a brick wall for and did the extra 10, 15% in the last 20 minutes when you felt like you couldn't run. 
and there was a camaraderie among those teams that you didn't have with the others. So the coaches that really had that personal touch and you felt like they were invested in you, they really wanted you to improve as a player, but they cared about you as a person. That was the thing that really stood out for me for what I would call my good coaches when I was growing up. And then the other side of that, I guess, um, probably the tactical side stood out the most playing semi-professional soccer in that it just wasn't great, Nick, when I look back. It was very much, listen, let's play into the channels, let's play safe, try and win games 1-0 if we can. We're not going to pass the ball too much because it's too risky. And when I played, certainly as a youth team of 20-odd years ago, no coach would have considered playing out from the back. It was just not a thing. Like the keeper would kick the ball, whether it's a punt or off the ground. They would not consider playing out of the back because it was way too risky. So when I look back um, from the tactical side, it was poor, to be honest. It was poor and almost like the antithesis, really, of the way I coach now. So, yeah. It's it's very interesting the how the game has, has how the game's moved on, how the tactics have moved on, and, and yet there's still a a core of coaching thought that is based on percentage football percentage soccer as you just described you know get it down the channels uh, yeah. you know squeeze squeeze the game um and it's yeah. really you know when, when we look at what the the youth game is all about and for for probably 99.9 percent of us it is about developing young players but then you get this this yeah. you know 0.1 percent that is really obsessed with winning and winning at all kind of costs while playing percentage football. So it's 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 such a tough one to um to grasp your head around because you know in competition there's there are winners and losers and and as we all know, you know, most of the time winning feels better than losing, except for when you know you're playing yeah. a great team and you lose one nil and that feels like a win. But so how yeah. how do you get your head how did you get your head around that kind of uh, thought process? Jesus, good question. Um, yeah, look, winning feels good. Let's not pretend it doesn't for all of us, whether it's kids, coaches, parents. It feels better when you've left the field and won. I am uh, I love winning and hate losing as, as much as anybody. I've been that way since I was seven or eight, and I don't know whether that's partially genetic or learned or probably a bit of both of those. But for me, transferring from being a player to uh, being a player that literally detested losing and I was really, um, really moody about it. Just, just uh, to be honest, Nick, when I look back, I was a bit of a horrible player. I was. Um, and I'm sure coaches would say the same kind of thing. But transitioning from being that kind of person as a player to being not quite the opposite, because I don't think you need to go necessarily right to the other end of the spectrum and be soft, but just being more understanding of of youth soccer and, and the development side of it as a coach, that was a big transition for me. Uh, and it took quite some time. Um, and on the, the on the winning thing, actually, it's funny you, the way you kind of phrased it, because I, I sometimes tell friends about a story of years ago. It was a Cow South tournament, actually, uh, within the first couple of years of SE England starting. And I, I heard this guy behind the goal shouting, uh, slow it, just waste time. Just waste time. Slow it down. You're winning. Just waste time. And I looked at him and I was 20 yards away. And I shouldn't have said anything. It wasn't my game. I was waiting to go on for the next game. And I said, mate, they're kids. Don't tell them to slow it down. They need to touch the ball. Let them play. And he looked up at me and he went, F you. Anyway, I saw under his hat. It was Latan Ibrahimovic. 
And he, uh, so I walked over to him and I said, look, Zlatan, as I walked over, he went, you don't know the game. You've never done anything. And I was like, look, all right, I've not done what you've done, but I've played at a decent level. And these kids don't have to be at this age. I think they were 12, maybe 13. It doesn't have to be all about winning. And his point was, well, it does have to be all about winning because otherwise they're never going to learn to become a top player. And I just said, well, the reality is 99% of these kids are never going to be top players. And I didn't don't say that in a disrespectful way, but we've got to kind of cater to the majority. And we agreed to disagree and we shook hands and it was fine. But it was just an interesting interaction. What's it like when, you know, you come across a 12, 13-year-old young kid who's who's got that winning drive that shows on the field that they hate to lose and, and they're always pushing the edge because that's who they are. And maybe, but maybe it, the, the rest of his team aren't. And you can see, you can see the annoyance, you can see the frustration, you can see the anger building and you're, and you're going to yourself, Oh, here's a red card waiting to happen. But at the same time, not taking that away from the child, because that's the driver that's going to push that player to maybe whatever that next level is. Yeah, look, I mean, you don't ever want to discourage or take that away from a kid, right? You you want them to channel it, but you definitely don't want to take it away. And the reality in those situations, when a kid on any team, and I've had this, isn't on the same wavelength as the rest of the players in that they might be really hugely driven and the other kids aren't, that kid ultimately ends up somewhere else surrounded by kids that are similarly driven. And, and that's OK. Um, again, I've, I've had some experience of that. But as a coach, obviously, your your desire is to get all of your kids or as many of them as possible into that mindset and scenario, not necessarily of wanting to be so desperate to win that, you know, they collapse if they lose. But just having that desire and drive to want to do better and do their best. And ultimately, then it just becomes about you walk off the field at the end and have you given 100%? Yes. So then the result doesn't matter. It takes care of itself. If you're playing against a better team and you've given 100%, majority of the time you're still going to lose. And that's okay. But if you've walked off and given 70 80%, it's not acceptable. Not for me anyway. Is that drive learned or are you, are you, are you born with it? Because I think that's the, that's the thing that many coaches kind of struggle with because we feel like we have these we have these experiences we have life experience playing experience coaching experience and sometimes I think we go listen just listen to me and and do what I tell you to do and it's gonna and it's gonna pan out the right way but it doesn't it doesn't work that way does it no it doesn't um and if it did and someone finds that formula Obviously, they'll be the best coach in the world and everyone else will go to them for that formula. But it's it's just so complex, Nick. There are so many facets and so many things to it. it, it it's partly, I think, it is partly genetic. I do think there has to be a genetic element there. Um, a lot of it is learned and a result of the environment that they grow up in. And by the environment, I mean the club or team that they're playing for. But equally, the parenting is a huge part of it. And so all of those factors, you've got a genetic element, you've got what team or environment you're practicing and playing in, you've then got your parents, and then you've got your social circle and friends, which also influence it. So it is really complex, and uh, there's no easy answer to it. There's not. As, as the director of coaching, you know, with your, with your own club, and you've got your, your own ideas about how 
you want your teams to look, to behave, to compete. How do you get that message down to all the teams? Because obviously, you know, you, you, can, you can only be at one game at a time. So what, what, what's, what's your techniques for spreading your message across the club so that, and I, I hate the word buy-in, but there's understanding of what you are trying to achieve from players, um, coaches, and parents? Yeah, for, for me personally, and, and this is carried through the club, it's, it's been about setting extremely high standards from, from day one. Sometimes, and for the most part, actually, impossibly high standards. But it ensures that everybody really pushes on to kind of reach the best that they can be. Um, it, it's, it's a difficult one. For, for me, I guess, at FC England, it probably, realistically, and being bluntly honest, is easier for many DOCs that are at bigger clubs. And that's obvious. It's easy for me because we have six teams. That's 100 kids, maybe 200 parents. I know all of them by first name, whether it, the parents and the kids. I spend a lot of time with all of them, and I rotate among all of our teams, as do our other coaches. And so it's a bit of a unique scenario. I feel the pain of, of a DOC at a, at a big club with 25, 30 teams. How does that guy get those those standards and that message across on that big scale? And it's way, way harder, Nick, and it's one of the reasons why Personally, from day one, we've never wanted to scale up what we do because, in my opinion, scaling up real quality across the board at a huge club, Jesus Christ, it's virtually impossible. Yeah, the, the, the numbers, are especially you know, when, you're, when you're talking about some of these super clubs, it is impossible for the DOC to know everybody and to, to be able to develop those relationships. And I think that's why... Uh, you see so much movement within the big clubs of players going, well, I've had enough here. I'm going to go somewhere else because I'm not getting the uh, the love that uh, I think I deserve. Yeah, no, that, that that's true. And it, it happens all the time. I think uh, probably at smaller clubs, the turnover, certainly in my experience, our turnover is um, minuscule. And I'm not going to big up our club, but I'm, I'm talking about retaining 95% plus of players over six, seven, eight years. But again, it's easier because you're only dealing with a small amount of people. And when I said at the start about setting high standards, maintaining those high standards and seeing what's going on in every training session with every coach. Yes, like you said, you can't go to every game, but I managed to get to most of them. And having that high standard maintained, again, is, is so much easier at a small club than it is at a big club. Um, but ultimately... Setting the standards is definitely the, the kind of way to go. And, and that's dealing with players, it's dealing with parents, and it's dealing with coaches. And if the DOC or the multiple DOCs at the big clubs do a good job of setting those standards and really kind of having morals and sticking with the standards, over time, I think you, you're only going to be successful. You mentioned standards a lot. Explain what, what that means to you. Yeah, um, I mean, first and foremost, it's about, um, forget the effort, it's about turning up with the right attitude uh, as a player. That means respecting your teammates, respecting your coaches, respecting the referees on the field. It kind of starts there. Um, and look, what, one area, if I'm really honest, that I've fallen down over the years and I constantly work to improve it, is setting the right example for the kids and parents with referees and with other coaches. And I haven't always done that. 
and I won't pretend otherwise. And so you're trying to set high standards and say, look, this is how it should be done. This is what you need to do in terms of your attitude. Then you might get involved with a referee and blow up. And people are looking, going, well, look at this guy. He's not, he's not living what he's saying he's going to do. And so that, that's been a real challenge for me. I'm getting better at it, Nick, but I'm not perfect. Um, but look, yeah, standards in terms of your respect for each other. And then the effort standards. When it drops below 100% and one kid is standing around in practice or two or three kids are standing around, I'm on them immediately. And it's unacceptable. And over a short period of time, kids quickly learn if they're doing that and the coach is going to jump on them, they'll just not do it. And so, yeah, it's about consistency of those standards and consistency with everything. Right. It's it's hard to maintain, but ultimately that's that's the way forward, certainly for me. Yeah, for sure. Um, who, who inspires you as a coach? I mean, do, do you have any uh, any role models you look up to? Um, any any uh, guys that have, you know, a, a distinct philosophy that you think to yourself? Yeah, I'm, I'm working with I'm working with youth players right here, but there's there's ideas that I can take from the professional game or the collegiate game and, and bring to this youth level. Yeah, it's so cliche to say it. Everyone says it, or so many people do, unless they hate Man City. Oh, it's Pep. I love Pep. And look, I I do I do really like him. I really like him. I think he I think he inspires and connects with his players. And he improves them individually, like perhaps some of the coaches don't. Um, I think his downside is he tries to be too crazy at times and and does those, whether it be a, a tactical thing that nobody's ever done before in specific games. Sometimes it feels like to me he does it almost for the sake of doing it. But I mean, no, look, he's the he's the top level coach I look up to. And then outside of that, my dad more than anyone else, Nick, my dad was my coach for seven, eight years when I was a kid. Um, just supportive, understood the game, um, would give us an utter rollicking when we needed it. And yeah, just, just a, a, an all-round good guy. And then his dad, my grandfather, played professionally for Derby. He was the same as my dad. Just a very nice guy, almost too placid and too nice at times. But I think I've taken their uh, their niceness and connection with people and then integrated that with perhaps a little bit of my nastiness from being a player to balance it out. Well, talk, talk about that balance, though, of having your dad be your coach, because as we all know, this is a very emotional game. Uh, when, you, when your dad's on the sideline, he's not going through the, the battle and the war that you're particularly going through, and then you come off the field and he gives you a bollocking. I mean, how, 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 do, you, how do you reconcile that with going, okay, dad's giving me coaching information, or... Dad's giving me a bollocking because he's my dad. Um, I think, yeah, he he was certainly always aware of making sure he, he he treated me the same as everyone else. And actually, it was more than just me. I had a twin on the same team. He was the goalkeeper. And my older brother was 18 months old, older, also on the same team for a while. So there was three of us. Um, yes, it, it's, it's a difficult one, that Nick. I, I feel like he always did a, a great job. He always did a great job of that and was, uh, was, I guess, firm when he needed to be, but just really supportive most of the time. Well, I wish, uh, wish my dad had been like that. He was, he was a terrible coach. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about the, uh, the youth soccer market here in Southern California because it is, uh, what's the best way to describe it? 
bonkers. Um, it's very fluid. Jesus, that's a good way. Um, yeah. There doesn't seem to be much consistency. What, as, as a director of coaching, are, are you looking for within the soccer market when it, as it dictates to your club and then if you could maybe put yourself in the shoes of maybe a bigger team, a bigger club? Um, yeah, good question. I suppose balanced competition is, is going to be right at, at, at the top of that for me um, because without that, it has a massive impact on development so as individual players or as a team you want to be playing against teams that are a similar level to you right you play against teams that are way below you and it doesn't push you you play against teams that are too good for you and i'll hear coaches talk about this often and say we need to play the higher level teams we need to play the higher level teams and often i'll say well why is that well we, we want to get better we want to play high level teams that's fine but how much are your kids going to have the ball in that game well, probably not much. We're going to learn how to chase it. And I'm like, well, no, no kid got better by not touching the ball. So having that, the, the, the balance competition is absolutely priority for me because you've got to be touching the ball to be able to improve. And like I said, if you, if you don't get the balance right and the teams are not good enough or too good, you don't have that sweet spot. You don't have that sweet spot of learning and development. So that's right at the top. Well, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, but how do you how do you we and and I'm I'm going to say we because you know I, I yeah. take advice from from all kinds of uh, people within the soccer community. How do you find that yeah. balance when you have so many and I'll put some of this on the parents. Parents going, listen, we have to play the best. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter that we're getting smashed ten nil. Well, to to your point, it, it does matter, and and I think within within our community. There are so many teams that we don't have to put ourselves in a position where we're driving 60, 70, 80 miles to play, to play one game. That's, that to me is utter madness. So as a DOC, when, when leagues come to you, when organizations come to you and say, hey, we've got this great new, uh, you know, BC DNLV, you know, it's a new league, it's the Prem, it's the Champs, you know, whatever whatever name they decide to come up with, we need you to be part of it. And we're gonna give you uh we're gonna give you competition that's uh relevant to your to your group, and then it never is. Because I'm sure yeah, it, it, Paul, I'm sure you could you could sit down and and find ten clubs that you could have a great game with every weekend, and that could be your league, and it would be tremendous fun, tremendous growth for the kids, great fun for the coaches and the parents, but that's not allowed to happen for some unknown reason. Yeah, look, you, you, you put it perfectly, Nick. I mean, I, I let's share your view, and I have done from day one. I think the travel is absolutely disgraceful. I think for kids of 12 and 13 to be going and playing a league game, tournament's a bit different. It's an experience. They go away, whatever. To go and play a league game in another state or four hours away is, I don't know what the word is, beyond bonkers. It's just utterly ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And as far as I know, I mean, I'm obviously experienced in knowing Europe, but I don't think other countries do it. I just think they're more sensible and have the localised, more regionalised games, which makes sense. Now, remember, we're in Southern California. For other areas of America or certain states, people might say, well, hang on, I've got a really strong team. Uh, the state as a whole is more spread out, and so we have to travel. Fine. 
The one place in America that you do not need to travel to get competition is Southern California. Come on. I mean, there's a ridiculous number of strong, well, from both ends of the spectrum, the best players down to the weakest. But the concentration of players here for soccer, boys and girls, is, is outrageous. And again, I, I mean, I can get carried away talking about it because for 11 years now, it's frustrated me. The travel is, it's mental. Um, and I think when we, before we started the club, actually, from what I remember it, even though I wasn't involved in club soccer while I was a private coach, from what I remember, it would have been better back then. I'll say back then. I think it was most people played in Coast Soccer League, from what I understand. It was much more regionalised and localised. You didn't have to travel that much. And that was probably better. Now we've got, like you mentioned, what have we got? ECNL, EAL, NPL. Jesus, I don't know. The CDC, NIH, you can add into that. But there's so many of them. It's Yeah, I understand having a competitive market. I get that. And over time, the best people or the best leagues or the best organisations should, in theory, rise to the top. But no, it, I mean, it's out of control now, Nick. It is. Do you get a chance to speak with other directors of coaching and, and, and vent your frustrations and hear their frustrations? Or is, is everyone kind of in their own silo? No, I, I, I do. And I think that's, um, that's the interesting thing that for the majority that I speak to, they seem to... They seem to think the same way as what I've just described, unless they're just kind of being nice and answering what I want to hear. They don't they don't want to travel. None of the coaches I've spoken to want to be going to travel to other states to play games or travel four hours to play a league game. None of them. Um, and I think that most of them, and I suppose I'm included, I'm part of this soccer culture. We just get carried along with it and accept it for what it is. Oh, it's, oh, we we have to, we have to. Um, but the only way it's going to change is if people stand up and and push for change. That's the only way anything changes. So if you if you were to have a, a magic wand, and and you want this change to happen, how would you go about doing it? Oh God! Ah, oh, most difficult question you'd ask me. Um, I've thought about it now for a number of years, and and I haven't been able to find. The perfect answer. I'm hoping that maybe some uh, maybe some administrators that are smarter than me can come up with the answer and figure it out. But um, I don't know. Maybe one way of looking at it I, is just to have to have less leagues again, to have less leagues um, and combine some of them. My twin brother, my older brother have competing businesses. They both run small sided soccer leagues, both have two of the biggest businesses in Europe for what they do. And I've asked them a bunch of times, and I'm sure this probably relates to youth soccer very much. I've asked them, why don't you combine what you do? And it would be way better to put both of your things together. They don't particularly like each other. They don't want to do that. And so it's not going to happen. And so essentially they fight each other in every town and city, not only in the UK, but now in other areas of Europe instead of working together. And I think that translates to the youth soccer world. I do, Nick. Yeah, no, it, 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 there's definitely an echo in place there. Um, where, do you see, where do you see youth soccer going in the US? Is it just going to get bigger and bigger, or is it going to get more fragmented? Um, we've got the World Cup coming up uh, in 2026. Yep. Obviously going to provide, you'd imagine, provide the sport a huge boost. We have the uh, the Olympics here in LA in 2028, and the Olympic soccer tournament is 
uh, one of the best tournaments in the world. So there's there's so much going on here. Are we are we going to lose sight of the youth game and and be looking primarily at the professionals, or do you, do you think we're going to get a boost and and more kids will come back to the game? Because I know we lost we lost quite a quite a few due to COVID. Yeah, we did. Uh, we did. Um, no, I think the the World Cup and Olympics will be a massive boost here in terms of bringing kids back to the game. I really do. Or at least I hope that's the case. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I lost my train of thought there, Nick. Where was the start of that question? What well, was no it worries. focused on? Uh, just, where do you think... This might be... My, my granddad had Alzheimer's, by the way, so yeah. this could be early onset Alzheimer's. I need to be careful. That, like the the youth game... It, it seems to me it's it's not as big as when I first started coaching. Um, yeah. And certainly not in, in the in the 2000s where it felt like everybody, AYSO was massive. You know, the the amount of yeah. kids that were playing uh, AYSO was huge. Uh, the amount of kids playing yeah. rec was huge. I mean, even, I'm going to say even eight years ago, my son played AYSO, he played rec. And now I go past the park where we were every weekend and – that used to be rammed with kids playing soccer, and now it's rammed with people with dogs. You know, at the same time, yeah. same place. Yeah. So we, we, we've lost players. So where where's the game going? Can we can we regain up the market share? And um, what do we need to do to do that? I mean, primarily um, foster a love for the game for these kids and get them to enjoy playing. So they're telling their parents, they're telling their friends. And they stay involved. The same with referees, right? We don't want referees to be dropping out in numbers. Well, how do you keep referees involved? Stop abusing them. So do a good, do a good job across the board for the kids. And I think the natural result of that is we will get more people come back into the game. However, I think, look, we're, we are in different times and things change very quickly. The social media and everything else, you know, kids seem to be stuck in their phones nowadays. That's very different. Nobody goes outside and plays and, I know I've talked about this for the 12 years I've lived here. It is different to when we were kids. We didn't have the phones and all the other stuff the kids have now, obviously. But even in Santa Monica, when I think about the different sports, Nick, lacrosse wasn't even around when I started the club. Or it was certainly not in Santa Monica, it wasn't. But now lacrosse is a thing and there's different lacrosse clubs. Rugby had never been heard of. You'd say rugby and people are like, what the hell's rugby? And so there's rugby teams and youth rec rugby clubs now. So there's other sports as well. Um, yeah, and, and look, the kids have ultimately got to enjoy playing soccer. And if an individual kid doesn't improve enough, because I think there are probably two reasons for that. One, they, they haven't learned the fundamentals at a young age. Or two, probably more importantly, haven't had good quality supportive coaching. If they don't enjoy the game by improving and keeping up with their friends, the natural result of that is they just quit. They just quit. And that... That only gets more and more as they get closer to high school and the numbers drop out are higher and higher. So, yeah, it's about being able to compete. Once they can't compete, they've had enough. And who can blame them? Talking of good quality coaching, how can people get hold of Mr. Spacey and FC England? Yeah, I mean, the website fcengland.com is is the easiest place. It's got all the contact details and, and everything else on there. Or if you were... If you want to come and see me face to face, by all means, you'll find me in Santa Monica on literally any fee, any turf field in the city, any night of the week. I'll be there either 
watching other sessions, doing my sprints up and down to stop feeling like I'm 43 years old, getting older. Yeah, or I'll be out coaching teams. Paul Spacey, Director of Coaching for FC England. Thank you for joining the Bear and the Ball. As always, you can get more information on Cal South on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at Nick Webster. We'll catch you next week on another episode of the Bear and the Ball.